You know, most boys like war stories. And my dad served in the South Pacific during World War II. He didn't talk much about the war, but he did tell me that he received a Purple Heart for a wound that he received while fighting on the island of Angar. I have to admit, however, I was a little disappointed when he told me he was wounded by falling on a coral reef and not gunfire. Obviously for him, the reef was much better than a bullet. In fact, many of his buddies lost their lives in, in that assault. But a reef put him in the hospital, and a reef can be a very dangerous thing. Innumerable ships have been lost on hidden reefs. And the little epistle of Jude paints a picture of an ungodly man, ungodly men, who had crept into the church unnoticed, and he calls them hidden reefs in their love feasts. Now, these ungodly men weren't the first hidden reefs in a love feast associated with the Lord's Supper. That honor goes to Judas. We learned of Judas's plot to betray Jesus in verses 10 and 11 of Mark 14, one of the thorns that we looked at last week. The next event Mark pictures for us is the preparation for Jesus' final celebration of the Passover with his disciples and the institution of the Lord's Supper. And the way preparations were made make it evident that Jesus was trying to avoid crashing on that hidden reef prematurely. We're in Mark chapter 14, beginning with verse 12. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when the Passover lamb was being sacrificed, his disciples said to him, where do you want us to go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the city and follow a man. A man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the owner of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he himself will show you a large upper room furnished and ready and prepare for us there. And the disciples went out and came to the city and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. Of all the festivals and feasts in Judaism, Passover or Seder as it's often called today, which comes from the Hebrew word for service, it is, without a doubt, the most important Jewish feast. It was instituted before the 10th plague, the death of the firstborn that broke the Pharaoh's hold on the Israelites and let them leave Egypt for the promised land. We read of its institution in Exodus chapter 12, verses 1 through 14. Now the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month shall be the beginning of months for you. It is to be the first month of the year to you. Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth of this month, 
they are each one to take a lamb for themselves according to their father's households, a lamb for each household. Now, if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his neighbor nearest to his house are to take one according to the number of persons in them, according to what each man should eat, you are to divide the lamb. Your lamb shall be an unblemished male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. And you may or shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel is to kill it at twilight. Moreover, they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. And they shall eat the flesh that same night, roasted with fire, and they shall eat it with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled at all with water, but rather roasted with fire, both its head and its legs, along with its entrails. And you shall not leave any of it over until morning. But whatever is left of it until morning, you shall burn with fire. Now you shall eat it in this manner, with your loins girded, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hands. And you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will go through the land of Egypt on that night and will strike down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. And the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you live. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Now this day will be a memorial to you. And you shall celebrate it as a feast to the Lord. Throughout your generations, you are to celebrate it as a permanent ordinance. Now, the, the celebration of Passover actually began a seven-day feast of unleavened bread that commemorated the hasty departure from Egypt when, as recorded in verse 34, the people took their dough before it was leavened with their kneading bowls bound up in the clothes on their shoulders. They didn't have time for their bread to rise before baking it, so they ate flat bread with a Passover lamb, wrapped up their bread machines, and left town. According to Mark, it was on the first day of unleavened bread, when the Passover lamb was being sacrificed, that the disciples asked Jesus where he wanted them to prepare for their Passover celebration. Now, there is considerable debate about what day this actually was. It's not clear what was meant by the first day of unleavened bread. And it's even possible that Passover was celebrated on two different days during the time of Jesus because two different calendars were being used by different segments of Judaism. But we're going to assume Mark is identifying the day as Thursday, the 14th of Nisan, the first month of the Jewish calendar which begins with the appearance of a new moon toward the end of our March or first part of April. Now, according to Exodus, the Passover lamb was to be killed at twilight, literally between the two evenings, which would have been mid to late afternoon. The Passover meal itself 
would then begin at sundown or around 6. When, according to Jewish reckoning of days, the next day, the 15th of Nisan, would begin. So it was Thursday morning when the disciples asked Jesus where he wanted them to prepare for the Passover. Now, part of the answer was obvious. The law required that if at all possible, every Jewish man was to celebrate the Passover in Jerusalem. And since they were staying in Bethany, only a couple miles from Jerusalem, they would, of course, celebrate the Passover in Jerusalem. The exact location, however, was unknown to the disciples, and for good reason. According to Luke, it was Peter and John who were sent into the city to make preparations for the Passover. And they were sent with some pretty cryptic instructions. They were told to look for a man carrying a pitcher of water when they entered the city. And that would have been a strange thing to see. Men often carried skins of water, but it was the women who carried pitchers. They were to then follow him. And when he entered a house, they were to tell the owner of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And the owner would show them a large room furnished and ready for the use. They were then to make the preparations necessary for the meal, to have the lamb sacrificed at the temple, purchase the wine and groceries needed, roast the lamb, bake the unleavened bread, and set the table. They found everything just as Jesus had told them and did as they were instructed. But how did Jesus know what they would find? Now, some suggest he used supernatural ability here. But I think it's more likely that he simply made the arrangements himself. He had been going into Jerusalem daily since that Sunday and would have had ample time to make the arrangements. But why had he done so secretly? Why did the disciples have to ask where they would be eating the Passover? The answer is that Judas was seeking an opportune time to betray Jesus. And Jesus did supernaturally know that. The Jewish leaders didn't want Jesus arrested publicly for fear of the crowds. And arresting him in the upper room while everyone else was involved in their own Passover celebration would have indeed been an opportune time. But, as Luke notes, Jesus earnestly desired to eat this Passover with his disciples before he suffered. And even though he knew there would be a hidden reef in their love feast, he wanted to avoid crashing on that reef during the meal. So he kept its location secret. That did not, however keep him from exposing the reef once they got to the upper room. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve, and as they were reclining at the table and eating, Jesus said, Truly, I say to you that one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. 
They began to be grieved and to say to him one by one, Surely not I. And he said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who dips with me in the bowl. For the Son of Man is to go just as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. Now John, in his gospel, gives us other details about this meal and records extensive dialogue that took place between Jesus and the disciples during the meal. From that dialogue came the new commandment, love one another even as I have loved you. And the teaching, greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friend. It's also here that we are assured with the words, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. And in my Father's house, there are many dwelling places, many mansions, and I go to prepare a place for you. Here we find Jesus declaring, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And that he is the vine and we are the branches. It's here that he promised not to leave us orphans, but to send the Helper, the Holy Spirit, and taught us how the Holy Spirit would help us. Obviously, Mark's account is very much abbreviated. And he seems to focus solely on the betrayal more than anything else. But he does leave out what was apparently Jesus' first indication that there was a reef in their love feast. When he was washing the feet of the disciples, Jesus said to Peter, who at first protested and then asked Jesus to wash not only his feet, but his hands and his head also, he who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. John adds the comment, for he knew the one who was betraying him. For this reason, he said, not all of you are clean. The first words at dinner that Mark records are, truly I say to you that one of you will betray me, who is eating with me. The disciples were shocked. And grieved, and one by one they began asking, Surely not I? Eleven of them asked that question with a clean heart, knowing they had no intention of betraying Jesus and praying they never would. One asked it to remain hidden from view, but the way he asked it, differed significantly from the way the others asked it. Matthew records the others asking, Surely not I, Lord. Judas said, Surely not I, Rabbi. At least he was honest enough to address Jesus as his rabbi, his teacher, and not as his Lord. Jesus responded to Judas with, You have said it yourself. He got the message, but it was ambiguous enough that the others didn't catch it. 
Jesus then stressed the fact that the betrayer was one of the 12, one who dipped with him in the bowl. And he was even more specific than that. John records Jesus responding to John's question, Lord, who is it? By saying, that is the one for whom I shall dip the morsel and give it to him. And then he dipped the unleavened bread in the herbs or the, the fruit of puree and actually gave it to Judas. Apparently, John then knew that eventually Judas would betray Jesus. But he did not understand that it would be happening that night. And even when Jesus told Judas, what you do, do quickly, they all thought he was merely being sent out to purchase more supplies for the meal or to give money to the poor, which was traditional on Passover. But Judas knew what he was going to do, and so did Jesus. He said, for the Son of Man is to go, just as it is written of him. And John quotes Psalm 41.9 here. He who eats my bread has lifted up his heel against me. Then Jesus said, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. Judas was fulfilling prophecy by betraying Jesus. But he would still be held responsible for it if he did it. There would be a betrayer that had been prophesied. But it did not have to be Judas. And I think that's what Jesus was trying to communicate here. He wasn't condemning Judas. He was appealing for him to reconsider. He wanted Judas to know that he knew what he was planning to do. But he was also giving Judas the opportunity to change his mind, actually warning him of the consequences of following through on his plan. He wouldn't stop him. And he didn't reveal Judas as the betrayer to the others so they would stop him. But he did want them to know and to remember that he knew what was going to happen so they wouldn't assume things had gotten out of control and he had failed after it happened. He wanted them to know that he knew there was a hidden reef in their love feast. And even though that reef would do great harm, it would not shipwreck their faith. And while they were eating, he took some bread and after a blessing, he broke it and gave it to them and said, Take it. This is my body. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I shall never again drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom Whether Judas was still there when the Lord's Supper was instituted or not, we can't be sure. But Luke seems to indicate that he was. It's after he records the instituting of the Lord's Supper that he quotes Jesus as saying, But behold, the hand of the one betraying me is with me on the table. 
John, on the other hand, presents Judas as leaving immediately after receiving the morsel. And most believe the morsel was given as part of the Passover celebration before Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper. But then, since John doesn't actually record the institution of the Lord's Supper, we can't be sure. So whether Judas was still there or not, he had been there. And that fact would certainly be remembered. Whether he was there or not, while they were eating, Jesus took some bread and blessed it. Most likely repeating the traditional blessing, blessed are you, Lord our God, who brings forth bread from the earth. He then tore the flat bread into pieces and passed it out and said something that was not traditional. He said, take it. This is my body. Luke adds, or at least some manuscripts of Luke's gospel add, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Now, Jesus had earlier referred to himself as the bread of life. He had, in fact, said, I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread also which I shall give for the life of the world is my flesh. By referring to himself as the bread of life, Jesus was indicating that he is the sustainer of life and the source of eternal life. The symbolic giving of his flesh in the Lord's Supper represented the sacrifice he would make to be able to offer that eternal life to any who would accept it. He then took a cup, one of the four cups shared during the Passover. We really can't be certain which cup it was, and gave it to the disciples, and they drank from it. And he said, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, referring to all who would accept the offer of his blood. The old covenant had been based on the blood of animal sacrifices and had to be renewed continually. The new covenant Jesus was offering to us is based on his blood, a sacrifice that would be poured out only once on the cross. If we accept the forgiveness made possible through his blood and the life made possible through his body, we can look forward to dining with him in the kingdom of God. And he is anticipating that day as much as we are. Until then, we are to remember what he did to make that day possible by meeting around the Lord's table and partaking of his body and blood in a worthy manner, with gratitude, thankful for the fact that if we will examine ourselves and see the need for forgiveness, he will grant it. In fact, I'm convinced he would have even forgiven Judas if he had repented. But he didn't. He went through with his plan 
and then in remorse hanged himself rather than seek the forgiveness that would have been available even after the betrayal. Jesus died to be able to forgive even those who are hidden reefs in our love feasts. Not only those who secretly betray Jesus, but also those reefs who, according to Jude, grumble and find fault and speak arrogantly and cause division. Yes, even a reef who has been responsible for the shipwreck of others can be forgiven if he'll let Jesus soften his hardened and calcified heart. What about you this morning? Do you find yourself becoming harder all the time? Like a reef that is dying? Or softer? Like a sponge absorbing the grace of God? If you'll remember what happened to Judas and remember the love Jesus showed by giving his body and his blood for us, you'll not find yourself on judgment day like Judas, wishing you had never been born. Today is a day of grace. If you've not accepted the gift of God's grace made possible through the sacrifice of his son, not only invite you, I encourage you to do so now. Grace, grace, God's grace, greater than all our sin. Father, we come before you with hearts overwhelmed by your love. When we think back to what Judas did, and we look at what others continue to do to cause division in the church and to dissuade people from trusting you. It breaks our heart. But it also encourages us because we know that forgiveness is available. You forgave even Manasseh in the Old Testament after he did some horrible things and led the nation in horrible directions when he repented. You forgave him. And you forgive us, Father if we'll just come before you and acknowledge who you are. You're not just our teacher. You're our Lord. You're our master. We've given ourselves to you. You've forgiven us. You've cleansed us. You've equipped us. And now you're using us in ways that bring you honor and glory. We could ask for nothing more. Thank you, Father, for your grace made available through Jesus in a sacrifice that goes so far beyond anything we can even imagine. Thank you for Jesus, in whose name we pray.